We left off when we were talking about putting together the will of God and um, how important that is. And so uh, in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, um, Paul writes something that's really interesting. And uh, he talks about uh, to these believers, he's given admonition to these believers about certain behaviors that uh, he desired of them. And and notice, and uh, we'll pick it up in verse um, 7. Be ye therefore, be not ye therefore partakers with them. He's talking about of the Gentiles. Well, let's just go back all the way to get some context here in verse 1. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ has loved us, and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and uncleanliness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you, as becometh saints. And so that word uh, named is, is an interesting word. It's to be characterized. So you shouldn't have a reputation as being somebody like this. And that's an interesting word because in uh, First Corinthians 5, 9, uh, that word is used to talk about um, how do you know who it is that you should judge um, in terms of their bad behavior. And he says if someone is named a brother, if they have a reputation for being a brother, I don't know, maybe they may not even be saved, <laughs> but they have a reputation for being one, right? And, uh, and they're characterized that way. And that's interesting. So he says, don't let it, be, you shouldn't be characterized by this. This is what the unsaved people are characterized as. And neither filthiness nor uh, foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. Then we're going to see this uh, issue of giving of thanks is, uh, is uh, one of the uh, things that a believer does in a desirous will of God. And so notice he says in verse 5, for, ye know, for this ye know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, nor an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. Because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. And again, as the children as the mature sons of disobedience. And we talked about it, uh, I think, last week. Or maybe it was yesterday. I don't know. I, they all run together to me sometimes. <laughs> but you have these, uh, Satan has these mature sons. And they are embedded in the world system. And they are embedded in the church. They are in the church. And, they, and I, what's interesting is that you see it here and you see it in the, in the, uh, the second chapter. He uses the, uh, the word, uh, these uh, mature sons of disobedience. And the word of disobedience is unpersuadable. They're unpersuadable. So they've got their marching orders, and they're going to, uh, what is it, the old saying out in the world system? Haters are going to hate. <laughs> right? Well, the mature sons are going to mature son it. <laughs> I guess is what you would say. Uh, we'll coin a phrase there. They're going to be mature sons. And I, I just think that I wonder, you know, and, and the, you know, I, I don't know the, if these guys are non-elect because of what how Satan manipulates in them. But what strikes me is that they're in the church and they're wrecking havoc in the church. There's a guy out in um, uh, Saddleback, Rick Warren. That guy has done more damage to the church than anyone that I have known in the last century. 
Some of the, the doctrine that he has perpetuated is so damaging to the church, it's unbelievable. This book that he wrote called The Purpose Driven Church is one of the most damning books, I think, that, that, that has uh, affected the church in the last uh, hundred years. And so you have these kind of people, and they, they, they are really trying to undermine and nullify what God is doing. And it's just really interesting to see. Okay, I'm off my... Uh, little soapbox there. Uh, but notice he says, <clears throat> um, Be the, not ye therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful fruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done uh, of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever does make uh, manifest is light. Wherefore, he says, Awake thou that sleepeth, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then, okay, on the contrast that you, you look. It's not looking, it's interesting that he uses the word blepo. So the idea is that you're walking through and you're glancing, and you're paying attention to what's going on. Do you know most believers are just asleep at the wheel? They just are. They're living life, and they're paying no attention to what's going on. They're not making, they're not really dialed in. It's like a a basketball player or a football player who's in a game, and they're not, their head, you've heard that statement, get your head in the game, Right? And their head is not in the game. They're paying no attention to what's going on. And that's what's happening to many believers today. They're paying no attention to what's going on. And basically what he's saying here is, get your head in the game. Get your head in the game. And so notice he says, uh, so see then that you walk circumspectly. Uh, Circumspectly, a better way to phrase that or to translate that is, see that you walk accurately. According to the proper standard, um, not as fools, <clears throat> like uh, fools, there is actually unwise ones, um, but as wise, redeeming, or really it's uh, the idea of um, buying out of the marketplace the time, or taking advantage of buying up for yourself the, the, the proper season. So you have this proper season where God's doing things. You're taking advantage of it. Well, how can you take advantage of it if you're asleep at the wheel? Most believers, it's just interesting in the culture we live in, a lot of believers are paying no attention to what's going on. They're paying no attention to what's going on in their life, what God is doing. They're just absolutely driving like they're asleep. And so notice, he goes on to say, buying out for uh, the, the time, or buying out the time or the season, <clears throat> because the days are evil. Wherefore, be not unwise. Or really, I would translate that, you stop being unwise. I think that they were actually in the activity of doing that. So what does he mean, stop being unwise? And, and well, well, we'll get to that. 
but on the contrary, understanding what the will of the Lord is. Now notice, you've got two different words that are at play here. Unwise and understanding. This word is actually the word for, uh, we, we talk about it a lot, about framing the mind. And uh, really it's the word um, framing, uh, the word for frame with the uh, alpha privative, which is you negate it when you put an alpha in front of it. Now we do this in the English, right? Um, and the best one that I can think of is the, uh, remember the 7-Up seven seven up commercial? Most of the people will remember this except for maybe Michael and Darlene. <laughs> they had the Bahamian guy with the 7-Up commercial, 7-Up, the Uncola. <laughs> right? Well, when you put un in front of it in the English, it negates it, right? Not a cola. Right? So that's what it happens in the Greek is they put an alpha in front of it. And so that's what's happening here. You have this word for frame of mind and it's got the alpha in front of it, which means not framing. You're not framing your mind. Now, I, I give it this definition here. It's used 10 times. This particular uh, form is used 10 times in the New Testament. And I give it this definition. Those who are unable to consider all facts in order to see things clearly. And so they just are not able to put the facts together. They just have an inability to put facts together, leading to the point that they can understand what it is that there's what's going on. And they just don't have an ability to do it. Now, let me show you a couple of places where you see this used. Look at 2 Corinthians 12. Paul uses this a couple of times in, that, in 2, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And we'll look at verse 6. Now, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul is talking about an experience that I believe he had. And I believe it happened um, in chapter 14 of Acts. Now, you can disagree with me and say, Kevin, you don't know what you're talking about. And, you know, we can disagree on that. But uh, if you want to be on the right side of it, you might want to agree with me on that. <laughs> but I believe it was in Acts, the 14th chapter, when he was at Lystra, when he was stoned, I believe he died. And you can see that the apostles stood around him and he rose up. And I believe that this is the experience that he's recounting, uh, is he, he's uh, remembering um, starting with verse 1. So he says, it's, it's uh, not expedient for me, doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And so we have a form of our rapture word here, of harpazo, I mean, to be snatched up is the idea behind it, uh, and to the third heaven, or really to the edge of the third heaven. Notice, you know, words do matter. Okay, Don, here's a little word that you might run across in the future. It's heos. And so it's not dealing with going into. So you come right up to the edge of something. You don't go inside of it. You go right to the edge of it. And that's where we see that paradise is located at this point in time. And he says, I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knows. So someone asked the question, well, why does he not know? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's, and someone gave this illustration, that death is such a smooth transition, seamless transition, that sometimes maybe it takes a little bit. He didn't know whether he was in the body still or out of the body. And so when you die, there is the potential 
that that could be the case, that when you die, maybe there is a transition period where you say, oh, oh no, I'm not in my body anymore. We, we don't know, but it's interesting how he, he, he says this. Now notice in verse 4, how that he was caught up into paradise. So he, here's paradise is at the edge of the third heaven. And so he was caught up into, so here's paradise at the edge of the third heaven. And so he was caught up into paradise. Paradise being at the edge of the third heaven, you see. And so notice, uh, and he says, and I and caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. utter. Of such a one I will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in my infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. And so here in the context, you see this word for fool is one who would boast. They're not seeing all the facts. You see, Paul says, hey, I'm, I'm not going to do that because it would be foolish. An unframing person would not consider all the facts and then they're not understanding what they're saying, you see. And they're making decisions that are not right. And he says, I'm not going to be like that. And in order to do to uh, to uh, do do such, I would I would be a fool. And so notice he says, and I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he sees me to be, or that which he hears of me. Now I, I've read through this, and when I see this particular verse, it just strikes me. It's interesting. You can give a false impression to people that we're more than what we really are. Right. This is what Paul's saying here. I'm just a man. And, you know, he could have used that situation there and given a false impression that, you know, people would be impressed by that. Paul, what experience you had. And he says there's an opportunity that that could happen, that you could see me above what is, uh, uh, reckon me to be above what is necessary. And so you see it used there. And then notice in verse 11, he says, I am become a fool in glorying. Uh, and he talks about these infirmities that he was going through. Notice in verse 10, he says, Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and in necessities and persecutions and distress, distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. And so he says, I have become a fool in, in glorying or in boasting. Um, uh, for I ought not... Uh, to have been commended of you, for in nothing am I behind the chiefest, the very chiefest of apostles. And so this idea that because of this boasting, uh, he sees himself as being a fool, engaging in this, trying to go tit for tat with these false apostles that are in the church who are um, boasting of themselves. And so this idea that there's information that one, they, they're not having all the facts and so because of there is a lack of information, they don't understand fully something. Let me give you one other illustration of it. Look at Matthew, the 13th chapter. Now, Matthew chapter 13 and beginning with verse 14. Um, it's used there. So the question was to the Lord, why he spoke in parables to the multitude? And notice in verse 14, he says, and 
In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, By hearing they shall hear and shall not understand. They will in no way, no wise be able to understand. Um, And seeing you shall see and not perceive. Uh, Really, you see the idea of see and not uh, know or uh, uh, know the facts. So this idea of understanding. So they're hearing something, but they're not able to put it together. And so they have information, but they, they can't put together this information in order to understand what's going on. Now, you're going to see this relative to the will of God when Paul uh, is able to um, is putting together how the Holy Spirit is leading him when he in the 16th chapter of Acts as to where he should go. There's information that you have as the Holy Spirit is illuminating and um, energizing in the believer. He brings about situations where the believer is going to have to make a decision and put together how God is working in a situation. And I don't think you're going to be able to do that if you're not spiritual. If you're not spiritual, forget it. Uh, And if the believer has not offered his body a living sacrifice, forget it. I mean, it's just not going to happen. And most of the time it's not happening for believers. Let's look over at Acts um, as an illustration of this word of putting together. And so you have it over here and it's translated understanding. It's a combination, it's a compound word of soon ido, soon ido. Um, soon is a, uh, the uh, intimate togetherness uh, preposition and idos is knowledge. It's together knowledge. So you're putting together knowledge about information that you are able to then understand. Ephesians 2, uh, did I say Ephesians 5? So he says in verse uh, 17, Wherefore, be not unwise, but be understood. Ephesians 5 is where we wanted to go. Did I say Acts? Okay, we're going to go to Acts, but go to Ephesians 5 first. We're going to Acts. Ephesians 5 first. But be understanding... uh, what is the will of the Lord? Um, what the will of the Lord is. And so this um, be understanding, be putting together. And that's, this word is used, uh, we just saw it used in um, Matthew 13, actually. That was the one that we were actually wanted to use. But let's look at Acts 7, 25, and then we'll go to Acts uh, 16. I'll get it right here before too long. Maybe. Acts chapter 7, 725. So this idea of being able to put together something, and so here you see it used of Moses. Uh, Moses, uh, when he uh, was trying to uh, he thought that he was going to be the one to lead Israel out, and he was trying to do it on his own terms. And you see that uh, what happens with it. Notice in verse 20, And which time Moses was born, and he was exceedingly fair and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. And when he was 40, a full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him and was oppressed. And he smote the Egyptian and he supposed his brethren would have understood. 
how God, by his hand, would deliver them, but they understood not. So he thought that they would put together, I'm the deliverer, right? They'd be able to see how God was working and that he was going to be the one and that his brethren would put all together all of the information surrounded that and they would understand that God would, had made him the deliverer. And so uh, they didn't get the picture. <laughs> they missed that memo. And so this idea of putting information together. Now, I really believe that as you put all the scripture together, you are able to put this information together if you're a spiritual believer, if you've offered your body a living sacrifice. That means you're going to be led by the Spirit. We know in, in, um, in Philippians 2, that the Holy Spirit or the Father is going to be energizing in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Right? So now the believer is going to be able to try to, the believer is going to be able to put this together. Look at an example of this. Look at, at Acts, the, uh, Acts chapter um, set, uh, 16. 16 is where we wanted to go. In verse, um, let's go back a little bit to get some context. <clears throat> In verse 6, now when they had gone through Phygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden of the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And after they were come to Myasia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. Uh, really, the word suffered is uh, he, he kept on hindering them or causing them not to be able to do it. And so notice uh, in verse 8, And they passing by my Asia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And verse 10, And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored uh, to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering. And so this idea of... Um, and they had concluded, and this idea of is really is uh, the idea of sum babazo is uh, uh, being knit. It's kind of a uh, being knit to, a knit togetherness or kind of ideal um, that we had uh, that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel unto them, and so they had concluded. And so here you see that the, the circumstances they were hindered from going into Asia. And then they see the guy in Macedonia, and they had concluded and, and uh, put together that uh, the Holy Spirit was leading them uh, into Macedonia. And so then they go into Macedonia, and then you see all kinds of things happen. And so this idea of uh, you be putting together what the will of the Lord is, the point that we're trying to make here is that the believer can actually be putting together what God's will is. And so there are circumstances that God brings. He's not looking at the circumstances. You're being led by the Spirit. But as you see these things, you can then conclude what God's will is. Let me give you an example of it. So when we came here to Florida, uh, somebody asked us to come here. We weren't looking to come here. Miss J was on the committee. If you want to... <laughs> you had a role in it. <laughs> so if you have a problem with me, blame Miss J. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so they asked us to come here 
We didn't know whether it was God's will yet. So we came here, we visited, talked to the people, talked about their constitution, saw that there were believers here, put some facts together about what we saw God doing in the situation, came to a conclusion, this is where we were being led to go, right? And so the Holy Spirit's going to bring situations into your life in which you're going to uh, be able to make decisions and have to make decisions about which way uh, you're being led to go. Living the revealed will of God is essential to putting together the perfect will of God. And so scripture lists those things that uh, God desires of believers. And here's the thing is that if, you know, a lot of people are looking for those things in God's will that are not revealed, but they're not doing the things that are revealed. And it's really hard to do the things that are not revealed if you are not doing the things that are revealed. <laughs> right. And so you could just look and, and do a little con uh, search in your concordance about things that are the will of God. And we'll look at a couple of them here. Uh, look at First Thessalonians 4, 3. First Thessalonians 4, 3. And so Paul writes to the Thessalonians, and in verse 1, he says, Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord, that as you have received uh, of us how you ought to walk and to please God, uh, so you would abound more and more. For you know that what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, uh, and that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust uh, of concupiscence, or really you could say the lust from passion, even as the Gentiles, which know not God. And so it's the desirous will of God for every believer that the believer lives set apart, sanctified, a set apart life. And as you live set apart, one of the things that you're not going to be engaging in is fornication. And so you have people who are engaging in these kind of behaviors and they're trying to find God's will for their life. Well, you're not going to find it as you're engaging in this kind of behavior. It's just not going to be possible that you're going to be able to. And so God has revealed certain things in his will that you know is God's will. And you see that as those things are revealed and you're living up to those things, then God's going to reveal more. Now, notice in the fifth chapter of First Thessalonians. And here's another one. Now, in verse 17, here's one of the ways that you can know that you shouldn't have a prayer closet. Now, why do we say that? Well, it says in verse 17, what? Pray without ceasing. Now, if you had a prayer closet that you went into, yeah, you would never, hey, sure, got it. <laughs> you would never come out, would you? Right? So this is one of the ways we can show the distinction between this dispensation and Matthew 5. Right? They were told to pray, with, to go into your, when you pray, go into your prayer closet, right? And pray. Now, if you did that today, you should never come out. I guess people would have to bring you food and water and all the other things. But notice in verse 18, in everything, give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And so in uh, all things, 
And really, I don't think that you can be thankful in all things if you're not spiritual. I've tried it, man. When you're carnal, forget it. It's just not going to work. You're not going to get a carnal believer that when adverse circumstances and situation come their way, that they're going to say, thank you, Father. They might grit their teeth and do it, but God knows. I mean, you're just gritting your teeth. And you don't have to do that. When we're spiritual, I don't have to grit my teeth. The Holy Spirit's going to provide the power for me to be thankful in that situation. And I'm not going to have to force myself to do it. But notice, this is the will of God. So you have these things that are God's will in in, uh, Scripture. When I am living the revealed will of God, then the will of God that is not obvious, um, that is not in Scripture. I mean, there wasn't a uh, Scripture uh, that said, Kevin and Joyce go to Titusville, (laughs) Florida. There wasn't anything that said that. So there are things that God reveals to the believer that is his will that are not in Scripture, but I'm, you're not going to know those things if you're not living in the revealed will of God. You're not going to be able to put that together. And so it is God's will for the believer to suffer for doing good. And so First uh, Peter 2.15, you know, you, you have a lot of um, believers. I always thought of this when they, back in the day when they were saying, um, uh, we're talking about um, what would Jesus do? And uh, boy, this was just one of the scriptures that were, was left off of the, um, the things about what would Jesus do and how we could follow in Jesus' steps. Nobody ever put this one in here. And so notice one of the things that is the will of God. Verse 14. Uh, go back a little bit. Verse 12. Having your conversation honest among, um, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. And this is your habit of life. I think Peter talks about this more than any other writer in the New Testament. And, and it looks at the habit of life. And I really think that that's a huge thing. You know, we, a lot of believers talk a, a big game. But you know, the proof of the pudding is how we conduct our habit of life. It really shows what we really believe. And so your habit of life, honest among the Gentiles, that where they speak evil, speak against you as evildoers, they may... By your good works, which they shall behold. Now, I really think this uh, uh, is probably um, these are probably elect that are that are being that are in play here. Um, notice, if, will you, if you would do a word study of Kalos works, and that's what's at play here, uh, it always has these this ideal of observation that someone can see something. On the outside, they're looking at something that they can see on the outside. A good example of it is Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men, which is what was told Israel, right? Let your light shine before men that they may what? See your good works. And again, the word that was used here is kalos. I believe kalos is looking at the end result of those good works and, and how beautiful they are seen by men from the outside. And they see that which they shall behold and glorify God in the day of vis- the day of visitation or in a day of visitation. This is why I believe here 
that he's talked that the elect are the ones that are going to see that now. I could be wrong. I, okay, we can disagree on that one. But I, I really believe there's a lot of information that would say that these are the elect. Now, notice in verse 13, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evil doers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, the desirous will of God, that with well-doing or by doing good. And so you have a, a compound form of agathos and poreo. Um, and so it's a participle form. And so agathos, I be, as you see in scriptures, agathos. So you have kalos good, I believe, is what people see on the outside. Agathos, I believe, is what is the motivating factor of doing good, you see. I believe that the Holy Spirit is the one that's producing that good. Because, you know, Paul says, that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth what? No good thing. And if God doesn't produce it, I don't think that you're going to have the ability to be able to do that. And so here it is, doing good that you will put to silence you would put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Uh, really, it's the idea put to silence is to, to put a muzzle on them. Uh, it's used in First uh, Corinthians nine nine of you should to muzzle uh, you shouldn't muzzle the ox that's treading out the grain, and the idea of putting a muzzle on the ox where it couldn't eat, and so the idea that you're putting a muzzle on these people who don't know what they're talking about. But you're giving them the opportunity to say something when you're not doing good or when you're suffering for doing evil. And so um, you see it used that way. And so uh, so is the will of God that you would put it. uh, You would put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And this word for foolish here in verse 15 is, again, our um, for that old word with the alpha prerogative. those who are uh, blind because they don't have the ability to, f- to put things together, or they don't have the ability to, to frame their mind in the right way, uh, is really what you see happening there. And so these uh, ignorant men. And so this is the will of God, that you suffer for doing good. This is what a lot of people have a problem with. Because, particularly in American culture, we're used to saying, hey, if we do good, nobody's going to do anything to us. But when you suffer for doing good, this can actually be one of the most, um, the hardest thing for believers today. Because you say, I didn't deserve this. Why are they doing this to me? I don't deserve this. Well, maybe you might not. But the Lord didn't deserve what he got either. Right? So it's not really about that. And so that can happen. And so... Suffering for doing good. So there are things that are essential to the believer doing the will of God. And so we see thankfulness is uh, one of them. Uh, patience is some of the, one of the things that we wanted to look at here. Look at Hebrews, the 10th chapter. Hebrews chapter 10. So Paul is talking to these believers and he's talking to them about um, living by grace and not uh, living by law. And so you know the story, I think, that uh, they had tried to go back under law. And so he's talking to them about what happened when they were first, uh, when they first believed and how they were illuminated and the problem that they were suffering. They had lost at one point all the things that they had and, and they suffered it 
uh, in the right way, but they were having a problem later on. Notice uh, we'll pick it up in verse um, verse 24. And let us consider one another uh, to provoke one another to love and good works. Uh, I don't know if how, how many of you guys remember Pastor Dave's sermon from when he was here, his uh, messages, uh, the lettuce series. And so here's, here's one of the lettuce that uh, he, he talked about. And so this, uh, you have really it's a hortatory subjunctive that tells, hey, come on, let's follow me in doing this. And, uh, and notice what happens here is you are inciting one another to love and to good works. Uh, it's actually this word for provoking is the word for to irritate or to sharpen. It's actually the word that's used in Acts 15 by Paul and Barnabas when they uh, had a d- disagreement. Uh, notice verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. And so this idea of what was happening is they were not wanting to assemble together because of the circumstances. And you can see that, man, in so many different ways with believers. We can come up with a multitude of reasons as to why we shouldn't assemble together. And man, I've heard the gamut of people who tell you why they don't want to assemble with other believers and they don't really have a full appreciation for what they're doing to other believers and what they're doing to themselves. For if we sin willfully after we have received the, really it's a full experiential knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for and of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. How much more sore, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who has trodden under the foot of the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherein he was sanctified an unholy thing and has done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that has said, Vengeance belongs to me. I will recompense, said the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 32, But called to remembrance the former days in which you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions. And so here they had, there was a point when they were first saved that they um, were illuminated and they suffered. Notice what happens. You could do a lot of things when you're really spiritual. And notice what, what happened. Partly while you were made a gazing stock. Uh, <laughs> we don't use that word anymore. You ever heard that word in the, used in the English vernacular recently? But it's the idea of a, a theatron. You, it's, it's like you were put on a theater. You were on a stage. And you were the object of a play that is being uh, played out. And so you see it used by Paul over in 1 Corinthians 4. Both by reproaches and afflictions and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. For you had compassion on me and my bonds and you took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourself that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast away, not away, therefore, your confidence, which has a great recompense of reward. For you have need of patience uh, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. And so the need of patience and doing the will of God. And so the word for patience 
um, is a compound word of hupo meno, hupo to be under, and meno to abide, to be in a place or a state of abiding under. Uh, and so you see this word for patience. Is, patience is a huge thing for the believer in doing the will of God. And so you see it translated um, quite a bit in the New Testament. Sometimes you see it translated endure, or one to tarry, uh, to suffer, or to, ab- to, abode, a, to abode, or then you see it uh, translated patience um, 31 times uh, in the New Testament. And so let's look at some of those because it's really interesting to see. Uh, patience for believers in this dispensation is derived from hope. Notice in 1 Thessalonians 1.3. And I know that Pastor David often said that um, for, uh, First Thessalonians and First and Second Thessalonians are just some of the most wonderful books, and I concur with him. And as you read about these believers, what strikes you is that these people are genuine, and you see it in how they conducted themselves. They didn't have to talk and say, "I'm a believer," and I would suppose they didn't run around with crosses on the back of their buggies. Or, or whatever it was they were using, nor did they have bumper stickers on those things. But it showed up in their life. And just look at what it says about them here in verse uh, 2 of chapter 1. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our worship. That word prayers is worship. Remembering without ceasing. Now notice these things that you're going to see and what it produces. Your work, and what did it come from? Faith. Your labor, and what did it come from? Love. And notice here also, and your patience, and what did it come from? Hope. In our Lord Jesus Christ, and in the sight of God, and of our Father. And so notice, um, you see two fruits of the Spirit, love and faith. Later on, you'll see another one, joy. Those are really signs of a person who is spiritual. I mean, you can, you can really see it. And so I don't have to go around saying, man, I'm a spiritual believer. I'm spiritual. In fact, when you hear someone say that, I like the way Dr. Schaefer used to say it, one of my seminary professors. If I have to say that I am doing something, I'm probably not doing it. And just imagine me going and tell Joyce as I get ready to kiss her, I am now loving you. <laughs> I mean, what, what kind of sense does that make? If you have to say you're doing it, more than likely you're not. You really just do it. And it's, it stands for itself, right? And so here you see it with these believers that they were just doing it. And what did you see? Love. What did they produce? Uh, labor. That's different from the word for work. It was labor is something different. When you love someone here, you will work tirelessly for them. And it's like you it, it, it's not that you don't feel it. You do. But it doesn't matter. Because you love them. And so I, I probably we've got our vernacular, our, our figure of speech uh, in, a, in the English side of it, a labor of love, something that you do and you could do it tirelessly. And so 
you see that with these believers, and they was just you can just see the genuineness of these believers. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came unto you uh, not only in power and the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for our sake, um, for your sake. Um, and so the point that we were trying to make here is the patience that comes from hope. There's an expectation that they had concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, and it produced uh, a patience that they were able to endure through the things that they were suffering as a result of that uh, expectation. And so uh, you see that actually used a couple of times uh, where patience is connected to hope or an expectation. You see it again in Romans 5 as well. Uh, patience has been exhibited throughout Scripture. You see it used with uh, Job. Um, the Lord exhibited it. Interesting. And notice in uh, Hebrews, the 12th chapter in verse 3. So in chapter 12 of Hebrews, it's very interesting. And so you see this, uh, Paul is using these uh, believers that have gone on before in different dispensations. And uh, he talks about the fact of the testimony that they left behind. And he says in verse 1, Wherefore, seeing that we are compassed with so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, I, I don't, some people believe that these people are sitting around and they're watching you. Uh, that's a frightening thought. It's a frightening thought to believe that my mother or my father is watching me, but they're in a fixed location. They are not watching, and I don't think there's any TV in heaven that they're watching everything that goes on. Hopefully not. <coughs> Seeing that we are encompassed with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily beset us. And so there's a particular sin that you have before you're saved, that you just kind of don't let go of. It's just laying over here and you say, hey, I'll drop all this other stuff, but here, I'm gonna, you stay right here. And you just kind of just coddle it and say, you just stay right here. I, I don't want to let go of you. And that's the next thing that he's talking about here is this besetting sin, which uh, this sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And so here you have the word for uh, treco uh, and a, a subjunctive ideal again. You come on and join me in running with, and notice this ideal of running, and it's, it's, Paul sees this as a race, and it's a, um, the idea of let, <clears throat> let, let us run, and notice, through the means of patience. And I think patience is the instrument, and, and I don't know that you can live in the will of God and accomplish the will of God if you, don't, if you don't have patience, if there is not patience. And patience is one of those things that is not in the fruit of the Spirit. It's something that you learn from the circumstances that God brings into your life. And so God teaches you, as you go through circumstances, how to endure under those circumstances. I remember there was a fellow back some years ago, and he said, uh, he had this, this, this saying, and you could probably see it with regard to this, he who fights and runs away, lives to fight another day. And so how many times have believers tried to escape provisions that God has brought into their life and they see that situation pop right back up? And they find themselves right in that same situation again. Yeah, Dan? How about, how about the other one? I like the two that got his own horn so barely near here it sounded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
But you, you have a lot of those, some of those things, and some of those, I mean, you can see from, an, from a scriptural point of view, it's not, it does make a little bit of sense. And so you see that. I mean, and so God brings us into situations where he is trying to teach us how to abide under circumstances, under situations. And we get to the point where we say, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to find a way out. You find your way out of it only to find yourself right back into the same situation uh, that you tried to run away from. And you, and you do find that. And so patience is an uh, important thing. And then we, we looked at uh, in First Peter 2.15 about suffering is necessary in doing the will of God. And you see it again in uh, 3.17. Uh, notice uh, First Peter. First Peter 3.17. And so this is, I mean... Remember the context here. So we, for some reason, I think, and and I could be wrong about this, but it just seems to me in America, we feel like it's not our right to suffer. There's certain things we just should not have to do. So we we just defer, defer a lot of things because we don't believe that it's our right to do so. And so suffering is one of those things. We just don't believe that we have to really put up with it. And so notice what Peter says. Now, remember, these believers are the believers that are suffering as a result of um, Nero setting Rome on fire and blaming it on the Christians. So then everybody ran from Rome. But from all accounts, Peter is still in Rome and he's writing to those believers who ran. Now, here, what is the irony of all ironies? The guy that was scared of a little slave girl has now gotten a backbone. And he's in the midst of the worst part of where the, the suffering is going on. And he's writing to those who ran. And so he's saying um, in verse 17, for it is better if the will of God be so. Uh, that you suffer for doing good than for, than, than for evil doing. For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put together in the flesh and being quickened in the spirit of, um, by the spirit, of, excuse me, in the spirit. And so here you see the, um, you see these two different opposing views. Paul, he says the word better here is a superlative. And so there are other options there. And he says this superlative notes, it emphasizes two opposing options, which, which one is far better. So if you say, okay, suffering for doing good, running, not suffering. Peter says this is far better for doing good, to suffer for doing good, than to suffer actually for doing evil. It's a better proposition. And you say, well, you just don't understand my situation. I've got a family I've got to be concerned about. And we come up with all of these things and, and uh, we, just, we have tons of reasons why we do what we do and we justify. But at the end of the day, God's in control. And he's not going to put us in a situation that we don't have any ability to be able to handle. And so this, uh, I give you again this idea of doing good in Agathos and, and such. Uh, now notice, we'll drop down to the bottom of page 40, and we'll look at um, the hindrances of doing good, and then we'll stop and uh, take a break. So there are hindrances to doing uh, the will of God, and so 
the believer's desires will can reject the will of God in some aspects of his life. Now, we see some of this. And let's just start with, with Paul. Um, and so circumstances can call, cause believers to, uh, to do this. Look at Acts 21. And we talked about this um, before. <laughs> and so, now I, I believe what happened was Paul was moved away from what God desired into what God permitted, right? He had already told Paul that he was going to Rome. Uh, that he was going to, excuse me, that he was going to uh, uh, give a defense before kings and such. So I think actually what happened could have been different. But I think Paul chose his poison here. And I could see that. I mean, this happens to believers, I think, at times. We can just dig our heels in and say, eh, I'm not going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it no matter what. And so you see this with the Apostle Paul. Notice in Acts 21. So here we go. He in verse one, and it came to pass that after we were gotten from them and had launched, we came into a straight course into Coves, and the day following into Rhodes, and from thence into uh, Patra. And finding a ship sailing into Phoenicia, we were went aboard and we set forth. And when we had discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand and sailed into Syria, and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unlaid her burden. And finding certain disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said Paul through the Spirit, uh, excuse me, said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. And when he had accomplished those days, we departed and we went our way, and we were all brought, uh, uh, brought us our way with our wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down uh, on the shore and we prayed. And when we had taken leave of one another, we took ship and they returned home again. Now, it's interesting that Dr. Luke just kind of says that. And then he just keeps going. He just says, hey, there was his disciples said to Paul through the Holy Spirit, don't go up to Jerusalem. He doesn't give a commentary on it, though, which is very interesting that he doesn't. But here we see it happen again, where I think that Agabus then verifies what's going to happen in verse nine. In the same uh, verse eight, and the next day we uh, they were of Paul's company departed and came into Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. And as we tarried there many uh, days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come into us, he took Paul's girdle and bound it in his hands and feet and said, Thus said the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owns this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And you, you know what happened then. And the believers tried to convince him, don't go, Paul. Don't go. Hey, Paul, don't do this. Verse 12. And when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul said, why mean ye to weep and break my heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, I, I believe that here what happened, as you see later on in the chapter, it could have happened a different way. It was very clear that the Holy Spirit didn't want him to go up to Jerusalem. But Paul determined, I'm going to do it. And so you see these there are certain hindrances that can happen in doing the will of God. I think here is the God's desirous will. Paul went into what God permitted to happen. See, I think he can accomplish it either way. 
and so and that in that situation you see it now here's another situation we'll look at before we stop i thought we would get out of this but i run in my trap apollos in first corinthians sixteen twelve. what's interesting to me with apollos and i we talked about this when we went through first corinthians i believe here what strikes me is that apollos it doesn't say that apollos did not come to corinth at the time because it was the lord's will you notice what he says here he says it was not Apollos' desirous will to come to Corinth, which is very interesting to see. Notice in verse 12. As touching our brother Apollos, I greatly desired him to come unto you with the brethren. But his will, and it's really the same word for uh, the desirous will of God, Thelema, uh, the result of his will was that he was not willing to come at all. Uh, excuse, uh, excuse me, not at all will, uh, to, was not to come at all uh, to come at this time, was not at all to come at this time. I'll get it right here. But he will come when he shall have a convenient time. And so you see this idea of the desires, will of God, and, and the fact that ones can make decisions um, contrary to what God desires for their life.